Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to the dispatch.com to get um, all of our free stuff, to become a paid member of the community, to check out uh, Sarah Isger's fantastic new newsletter um to uh say hopefully not too many horrible and um uh uh, cruel things about me um in the comments all of these things you can do if you become a paid member of the community plus you can find out gnostic information so secret i can't even tell you what it is okay so um oh and today's episode is brought to uh brought to you by our friends at the Bradley Foundation, and of course, ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so um, uh, today's guest, special guest, return guest, but also I think I am on record as saying one of my absolute favorite people in Washington. Uh, Not quite like a sister to me, more like a cousin from the waspy end of the family. (laughs) who I only see at, like, family gatherings, and we peel off to the side and make fun of everybody for being so weird. Um, But she's nonetheless one of my favorite people, and we are both dog lovers, and when we see each other, we mostly just talk about dogs. We'll try to keep that to a minimum. Some people complain. But uh, we have the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics and so many other things. Uh, A.B., welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, thank you so much for having me back. I'm um, really honored and so scared. I'm going to blow it and never be asked back that I'm just going to liberate myself today. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine how you would actually blow it. And, this is um, a small club, the returning members. I'm just, I'm just. It, it, is, it is indeed true. And at some point we're going to have to teach you the handshake. Um, that comes with your third appearance. Um, so, um one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is one, because I love you, but two, because um, um, we've had in the last week, we had, or last week, we had two people who were supposed to be doing some rank punditry for me. And it just, it simply wasn't rank enough. And so I want to do, um, I want the real thing, right? You know, you don't, in terms of the punditry, it was, it was like cocaine that had been stepped on too many times, you know, just too much baby powder in it. So I want to go to you and get the real punditry. Um, let's start with the state of the the Senate races because I think everybody agrees the like Democrats keep the House. It's a foregone conclusion, and in fact, they gain seats. Is that right? Um, there's not one forecaster. All 
cycle who has uh, given the Republicans a chance to take the House back, um, as I'm sure your um, biggest junkie listeners have read, um, they're um, being outspent in the frontline districts by the Democrats who took their suburban seats in 18, five to one, and the NRCC, the campaign committee that is uh, there to uh, help them hold on and is supposed to be recruiting good people and get them back in the game, um, is desperate for money and the Trump campaign is hoovering up all the funds and the donors are ignoring the House Republicans since there's no hope. So not only are things looking good for the Democrats who won in Trump districts in 2018, um, it's looking like the Democrats are in a good position to pick up even more seats. Now, is, how much of that is just, I mean, obviously the money matters, but how much of that is also just a function of the fact that those Trump districts that the Democrats took back were disproportionately suburban districts, right? I mean, they weren't like crazy rural districts. They were the suburban districts that the non-AOC, more moderate Democrats could take, right? And so the suburban districts have gotten even less, Trump has lost those suburban districts, right? There's not a lot of rural districts that Democrats took in 2018 or anything like well, that, right? Right. These are in places that, um, uh, one in Oklahoma and Missouri and places that, believe me, at the start of last year, we I think that those of us watching this stuff, we're not so sure that the Democrats would definitely hold on to those seats. Um, it might have been an energized non-Trump vote that turned out, but surely when he was back on the ballot, they were going to be in trouble. They did not think that they could hold those 41. I mean, a lot of them were easier to pick up, but the ones that were hard, um, Spanberger and Virginia 7, you know, who um, beat um, uh, uh, Dave Bratt, who uh, took Eric Hanner out, this type of thing. Certainly people did not think this was going to be going this well, but obviously everything collapsed on Trump, Many, much of it self-inflicted. But, um, but yes, there is a, just a real trend uh, demographically in these places if you combine the fact that the voters in the Obama coalition who never turned out for him in 2010 and 2014 and they got slaughtered in the midterms, but they did turn out for him in 2012 to help reelect him, came out in the 2018 midterms. We didn't think that they would. Uh, these voters don't vote in midterms. I was very uh, bearish on that that coalition turning out um, the young, the non-white. Um, but they, if you look at the that from the midterms of 2018 on, not only did they show up, and we we know now they intend to show up this year, and they're energized and engaged. But then the former Republicans, the independents, the college-educated white women, have only become more. Uh, disenchanted with Republicans uh, throughout what we've seen, impeachment, COVID, and on and on. So you, you combine that those two things, and it looks like, you know, Jennifer Wexler in Virginia 10, who beat Barbara Comstock um, in a perfect storm district where there's high minority, high education, professional women, all these factors that were anti-Trump. Um, she's obviously going to have a much easier time holding that district very well than we might have thought on election night in 2018 when she beat Barbara Comstock. All right. So I want to come back to some of that when we talk about what a post-Trump world might look like. But let's go to the Senate. There is still a live possibility that Republicans hold on to the Senate. It's a much more contested space. Um, doesn't look good right now for the Republicans, but 
give, give us give us your lay of the land. How does it look? Um, who who's in the most trouble? Who's surprisingly not in the most trouble? Right, Jonah. I think it actually looks really bad for Republicans. I mean, as you know, Cook last week. Um, it was for a while. It was big news when it went to toss up, and then Cook uh, tilted it towards uh, slightly numb last late last week in. 2018, the Republicans had the best map for the Senate since 1938. They only netted two seats. They went into this having to defend 23 seats, the Democrats only 12. The Democrats are really only defending Gary Peters in Michigan, who seems to be holding on quite well against John James, who ran against Debbie Stabenow last time in Michigan for Senate and lost. But it's a really compelling candidate. He's tried to distance himself from Trump, African-American, vet, um, young kind of next wave of Republican Party, the person that we would hope would be the, the face of the Republican Party going forward before Trump broke it. Gary Peters is now actually doing fine and seems to be holding on quite well. So Doug Jones is the only Democratic loss that, that they expect. So then you look over on the Republican side and I have- Senator from Alabama, just so. Oh yeah, who won in the special against Roy Moore in Alabama, Jeff Sessions' old seat, and now is- um, you know, it's, it's very likely to lose. I think Trump's approval rating on average is always highest in Alabama um, in the country. So you look at, I look at three buckets. I look at the first bucket, which is toss up, and that's Montana now, um, Colorado, uh, Maine. Those are two Hillary one. And then North Carolina, Tom Tillis, and then um, Arizona. So you look at Steve Daines, suddenly threatened by uh, Steve Bullock, the incumbent, was doing fine. All of a sudden, they're having to spend millions of dollars sending off the current governor who ran for president, said he would never run for Senate, and now was talked into it by Chuck Schumer and is, uh, has made that race a toss-up. He's well-liked. He has high approval on COVID, and Montana is now a threat for Republicans. Colorado and Maine, Hillary won both. Um, very tough for Cory Gardner and Susan Collins with a high energy Democratic turnout and, and good money. And then you look at North Carolina and Arizona, both Tom Tillis and Martha McSally in real trouble, and Biden, of course, had in their states on and on. Those are my five toss-ups. Then you look at the um, other worrisome category, two Georgia races, Iowa and Kansas. Kansas depends on whether Roger Marshall, a sane uh, Republican in the House, a congressman, wins the August 4th primary in Kansas. If he does not, Chris Kobach does, who ran and failed in the gubernatorial race in the midterms, is an immigration extremist who ran um, the president's uh, voter fraud uh, initiative in early 17 and didn't find any voter fraud. Um, and it's a controversial figure that the Republicans fear will lose if he's nominated. Um, he's running against uh, Barbara Bollier, a uh, state senator who was a Republican until uh, 2018. She's the perfect recruit for Kansas for Democrats. Kobach was beaten by Laura Kelly, the Democratic governor, who, as a Democrat running Kansas, has the infrastructure to help the Senate candidate. So there's all these boons for the Democrats there in a red state if the Republicans nominate Kobach and not Marshall. Um, so you look at, like I said, two Georgia seats, the Kansas seat, and Iowa. So that's another four. We're up to nine now. Um, lots of headaches, lots of money. Then you get into probably Republicans hold on, but more headache, more nightmares, and more money, and that's South Carolina, Kentucky, and Texas. Texas, to me, being the most important of those three. 
Lindsey Graham likely wins South Carolina. Sure. It's going to cost a lot more money now that his calendar has uh, been raising so much money and nipping at his heels in the polls. Will McConnell win in Kentucky? Yes, McGrath is a terrible candidate, but she's got Breonna Taylor's death, motivating a lot of black vote in Kentucky, raising a lot of money. And then you look at Texas. John Cornyn is in no way safe in Texas. Is he going to win? Probably. Um, Biden is uh, ahead of Trump by some polls, energized Democrats after the Beto race. It used to be a laboratory for lapsed uh, voters or non-voters. Worst voter turnout in the country until 2018 was Texas. Now you have all this energy and all these people trying to, you know, get these voters registered. And you have, as um, Ted Cruz has warned, ever since he won by 2.6 percentage points in uh, in the midterms, that this was going to be a hotly contested race. And then for Democrats can turn this, it's all over. Democrats are hoping even if Biden doesn't win it and um, Cornyn's challenger doesn't win and Cornyn holds on, that they can try to flip the legislature and a bunch of new seats for the they're they're really kind of finally doing what they've never done, which is to think long term and uh, purple it now and 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 launch it to blue eventually by investing a lot of money. So um, that's a problem for Ted, for for John Cornyn and Republican Party. There is panic and trying to register a million new voters. So if you look at at this and create some sort of internal electoral college thingamabob inside the state, did you see that story? What? The RNC came up, uh, the Texas GOP came up with this idea. I don't know where, if it went anywhere to create kind of an internal electoral college. No, I did Inside not. the state of Texas. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was like a one day story and then went away. But I just thought th- this is not something a confident party does. Well, the, you know? What's so interesting is they've kept it quite quiet. But January 19, January of 19, Cornyn was on the record saying the president won't necessarily win the state. On the record. John Cornyn was, and and that it, and they are they've been trying to sort of keep it in the family. But the Texas Republican Party, whose donors have always sent the money out of state, have told the 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 donors two years ago it stays in a Lone Star state. Like we're in real trouble, and um, <clears throat> so no, they're not confident at all. They're they're completely panicked now. The only thing that can save Trump and Cornyn and all of these all of, in all of these races really is to press Democratic turnout because the virus. And that's a, that's a huge factor. But if, if there was no virus, John Cornyn could be easily swept out. That's, that's really a problem. Republicans in Texas don't really like Donald Trump. He won by nine. But as I said, it's now like in danger, in danger zone for him. So look at these. This is nine states where, I mean, sorry, 12 states where if they're not at risk of losing the seat, they're having to spend and spread uh, precious resources um, and fight off, um, you know, in a place like Texas, a raging virus. And so um, this is just everywhere they didn't want to be. And in a wave, you're going to see a couple, you know, at least one of those wild cards go. You know, is it Tony? Is it it John Cornyn? Is it Lindsay? Is it the Kansas Open? You know, it's just, um, it's nuts. There are about four seats that look on path to go to flip right yeah and then doug jones going the other way so that's a net of three if president trump holds on they can only lose three they keep their majority right because that's vice president cybrick but so um how much 
how to put this. So how, how much of, you know, you're saying about the House stuff that the anti-Trump sentiment among the suburbanites, particularly suburban women, has gotten so intense that it's made what looked like in 2018 some safe seats uh, or some, some, some toss-up seats for Democrats in terms of them holding on to them look much safer. How much of, do you have a sense, is the anti-Trump sentiment, how much of it is, do you think is long-lived past a Trump presidency, right? I mean, is, is it, do, this, do the suburban women, when some more moderate Republican types start running and Trump is no longer in the picture, do they still say, man, Trump was so awful, I still can't vote for that party? Right. That, that's the burning question that I'm so um, obsessed with is whether or not the party stays a party of white grievance and um, native fist policies and, and um, you know, it's find a lie all day and undermine the judiciary and all this stuff. I mean, you'd have to take a sharp turn, but I think it won't be hard to see that there's an opportunity uh, for these women to come back into the fold. There's an opportunity for, you know, the only thing I think that unites the Democratic Party right now is defeating Trump. And I think that Biden is this wonderful pause for the party to get back into power. And then it's all going to blow up because we're going to find out in a few days who he picks for the vice president. And I'm writing a piece for Real Clear right now about whether or not he's going to go for a push or go for a pause. And, and so, right, some of the candidates he's looking at are a pause. Others are a push. He tends to be pro-persuasion instead of mobilization, but the party wants to mobilize post-Biden. They're like giving Biden the nomination just to get rid of Trump so that then they can go to get to the progressive wish list and all the energy on the left. And so, yeah, once Trump is gone, whenever that is, um, I think if the Republican Party repositions himself itself shrewdly to be a winning party, to be competitive, to be broader, um, to appeal to more people, it can win a bunch of people back um, as the Democratic Party uh, tax left with a new leader who's not Joe Biden. Um, that's, and that's something Republicans really need to start thinking about. I um, um, I was on the almost dad joke quality named podcast, the Chuck Toddcast last week. <laughs> um, and uh, I was on with Krauschauer, um, you know, who, uh, who who knows more about politics than I do. And, um, but it was so it was funny. We were talking about what a Biden presidency would look like. And Krauschauer went first on that round. And he said, you know, you could really see him looking like an LBJ um, in terms of having a, just a huge first hundred days, just sweeping legislation through and all the rest. And I was kind of a little, I was a, I was a little crestfallen about it, but I was also sort of a little, you know, buoyed because I've been comparing Biden, a Biden presidency to the LBJ presidency, but more for the reasons that you were referring to. The last year of the LBJ presidency where he was just being eaten alive by the anti-war left, by the civil rights left, even though he had done important things on civil rights, obviously, um, where he was um, uh, just being chewed up by the base of his own party and incapable of figuring out how to respond to it. And 
I, you know, I think the Kraushauer argument that he could have a big hundred days is entirely plausible, particularly if they can goose up the numbers in the Senate. Um, but, you know, the reason why I bring it up is that something that I, my friends on the right constantly bring up is that, you know, Biden's going to be this avatar for socialism. He's a figurehead. He's going to be like a puppet of the left. A lot of those Trump talking points have penetrated through. Um, and they also think that, like, uh, the riot stuff and the Black Lives Matter stuff is going to get much, much worse under Biden because they think he can be rolled and all of that. And I think that the the two things don't go together, right? If if the Black Lives Matter and the protests and all that stuff get much, much, much worse under Biden, it makes it much harder for Biden to have that big, glorious 100 days thing because a lot of moderate Democrats are going to, like, not want to be associated with it. And I just... I guess the thing is, 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 I'm a fan of dynamic scoring, even when it comes to politics. And people do this sort of straight line projection thing that that Biden will just fulfill one car- one story arc and no other, and it won't have a response to it. Um, what? Do, how do you think the left will, or how do you think the Democrat? What does the Democratic Party look like after it's pushed on? After it's gotten its its reason for existence accomplished, which is getting rid of Trump, it just seems to me that there's just so much pent up, you know, civil war within the Democratic Party that is going to come to the fore really quickly. I think so, too. And I actually can see a scenario like you described where in the last post midterms, if they're terrible for Democrats in 22, and they absolutely can be if history is a guide and the pent up progressive energy is coming at him and He's gone too far and the country is still definitely hurting, right? I mean, how quickly can we get past recession and pandemic, right? So you could see how horrible his first two years could be. And then there's a huge boomerang and they lose uh, the midterms and he's really struggling. I think, as you said um, about dynamic scoring, I mean, Biden is tricky. He is not... um, as easy to sort of figure out as people thought he was in the primaries. And um, he has been, as I said, very cautious, more interested in mobiliz- I mean, persuasion than mobilization, uh, very deft at uh, saying several times, I don't support defunding the police. Uh, he let Bernie's, you know, people come uh, hang around and, you know, pass some proposal set together. It did not include free college or Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. And, you know, at every step that the progressive left has waited for this nirvana moment, you know, Biden has not delivered. But again, all they want is November 3rd. So he's safe for now. As far as like passing a bunch of stuff, I mean, it's really going to depend on whether Biden, who's this Senate institutionalist, is willing to get rid of the filibuster. They can have a great sweep um, in uh, in the election. But, um, you know, 60 votes is not 53. It's just we really don't know what lies ahead in terms of how far he's going to let them push him and how he's going to try to set up his successor. Um, does Biden intend to leave? You know, I think he intends to leave in four years <clears throat> or less than four. The countdown. But what is that? This is the first time we're going to see someone really working hard to hand off to the future. This is the, that person's like the future of the Democratic Party. That's why I need to see. Is it a pause or is it a push? <clears throat> is it 
Karen Bass, the congresswoman from California, who is not interested in being president and is super measured. And yeah, she's head of the CBC Congressional Black Caucus and she's a progressive, but she has she's pragmatic and has all these Republican friends and would probably be cutting deals with Republicans if she was VP on spending bills and all this stuff. And so I'm really going to keep my mind open. Um, I know what the left wing of the party is going to do to muck things up, but I don't know how much give a President Biden is going to provide. And so that will tell us the timeline of kind of this explosion that I do expect once, let's say you have Kamala Harris in 2023, you know, actively running her campaign for the presidency with primary pressure from other people, let's say like Stacey Abrams. That's just going to be a different time and it could be terrible for the Democrats. And I, I really bet it will be. But um, it's just how many breaks uh, Joe Biden is willing to, to, to pump between now and then will we'll determine a lot of it. So settle something for me. I, I, you know, among the sort of donor types that I know out there on the right, the thing that they are most reasonably freaked out about, right? There are some things that they're not reasonably freaked out about. They're unreasonably freaked out about. But the things that they're most reasonably freaked out about is that the second the Democrats get back to the Senate, they're going to get rid of the legislative filibuster and that Biden's going to get rid of it. And I'm always like, well, let me just walk me through the steps. First of all, the president can't get rid of the legislative filibuster. The Senate has to get rid of the legislative filibuster. Right. And you need enough senators to get rid of the legislative filibuster. Among Democratic senators right now, do you think they would have 50 votes, 51 votes to get rid of the legislative fil filibuster if they could? I don't. Um, like Manchin right. and Sinema? Yeah, they... And then you look at like who would come in, right? Like if Steve Bullock comes in, if Barbara Bullier comes in, you know, are these people going to, no. Um, and so I don't, I don't see it. Uh, and again, I think Biden would be very hesitant to do that. It would have to be with his blessing if he was president. One would think, right? I mean, because without his blessing, if he says don't do it, that's got to be good. That's got to be a safe harbor for at least another five, 10 Democrats who are like, well, look, the president doesn't support it. So, you know, let's you know defer to him on this question. Remember, I, mean, I think that's a dumb is thing. Much more, I mean, look at Nancy Pelosi, right? She, you can look at her past and say what you will. She was speaker in 2006. She got a lot better at it her second round. That woman is trying to help the party become a durable enough governing coalition that it can hold office and not, you know, be swept out in the next power cycle, in the next, uh, you know, election. So it's, it's, it's really... Um, power shift is what I'm going to say. He, she is really much more pragmatic. And so I think is Chuck Schumer than um, they want the base to realize. They want people in the press to talk about. So with a President Biden also being pragmatic, it would be, you know, the, the, the thumb is on the scale for holding power and not doing radical things. Uh, and the legislative filibuster is something I, I really, again, the institutionalists like Schumer and like Joe Biden um, are going to really have a hard time with, let alone the conservatives in their ranks that you just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, and I do think, you know, it's obviously I am not a Democrat and all that kind of thing, but um, it would be better for the country if the Democratic Party started thinking 
beyond the next election, right? Because Jonah, this I mean, this is what we talk about all the time. And better for the country if both parties did. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my point is, is that I mean, right now the Republican Party is not thinking past the next election. Right. It's you know, and that's one of the that's one of its structural problems. It would be good if both parties. I have absolutely because what that has a you know whether however you want to think about it, it's a conservatizing pressure, which says let's not go too far this direction or that direction and get one big score that elicits an antibody response that sweeps us out of power, right? And that's the pendulum that we've been going through for so long. And this is this is a principle that conservatives used to really understand about thinking beyond having a long-term horizon in and and thinking beyond, you know, just simply the election cycle. And that's one of the reasons why I really want to talk to you about the Bradley Foundation. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring British author and historian Andrew Roberts, the author of numerous award-winning books, including his most recent one, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Roberts is the foremost expert on Winston Churchill. In this episode, he addresses Churchill's approach to governing during a crisis and how he evolved from statist to staunch advocate of the free market system. Roberts also shares his take on the destruction of historical monuments. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so um, where were we? I mean, so, I mean, we talked about this the last time you were here. I would say I talk about this with every third guest, and sometimes they look at me very funny because they're like, I was here to talk about the situation in Taiwan, and I'm like, yeah, but let's talk about the weakness of the political parties. Um, <laughs> but that, but that thing I was telling, I was talking about before about thinking long term. If the both parties had a long term understanding of their interests, right, rather than I think Ross Douthat put it that the parties have turned into planes fueled sitting on the tarmac waiting to be hijacked. <laughs> um, That's wonderful. And, which I think is a really good way of thinking about it, right? I and mean, that's what, what it was in 2016, to be sure. Um, you would have, you know, you would have both parties, you know, they would still stand for something, but and actually they would stand for more, I would argue. But they would also understand that making incremental changes in your direction is a way you build a coalition, while throwing, going for the long bomb is the way you destroy your coalition. And um, that's totally gone. Um, so do you think that Pelosi can be successful in that project? Well, well, um, I'm going to congratulate her heartily if she manages to keep people in those districts. I don't know if Joe Cunningham can hold on in South Carolina one. Um, that was just, you know, one of those crazy wave moments. Uh, but he, um, you know, there, if she can hold a bunch of those 41 and even add to her majority in more suburban areas or outer suburban areas, um, we're talking about a woman who, you know, wants to grow the party. 
and power and have a larger, more durable coalition. So, you know, you are my favorite thinker on this stuff because you talk about how if when the parties used to believe in ideas and then the other side would listen to their argument, they saw defeats as corrective and they knew that after the defeat, they would course correct and would appeal to more people if they repositioned themselves and thought anew about their plank, their principles, holding fast to their principles, but you know, finding a way to bring more people in the tent. And, and that the idea that you have to obliterate everything and everybody, your party, the other side, the media, your enemies, to hold power in this next election, every cycle is completely destructive. It's not governing. It's not, you don't believe in your ideas because you're not even trying to sell them. You're just trying to obliterate people and it's and, and the other argument and dominate in news cycles and all this stuff that is um, is not problem solving. So it, this this thinking, um, I'm really desperate um, for any party, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, to to revisit to 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 take hold again of this idea that if you believe in your ideas for problem solving and you put the time and energy into selling them, you will a win more converts and b you will win the next election if you get defeated in this one. And it's better for the country if you do so. And it's what I think we're learning is better for the other party. As each party becomes more crazy, it makes the other party more crazy. And so that's why I'm desperate, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans post-Trump, to just get back to this idea that it's not even really about, you know, the power of the DNC or the RNC so much. It is the the fact that you're going to stand for something. You're not going to throw it away when Donald Trump gets on the ticket. You're going to sell that to an increasingly broad group of people to expand your coalition and not narrow it down on the Republican side to a bunch of white men aged, you know, 51 to 81. So it's funny, like for years, I used to like make this argument that um, even before I sort of got obsessed with the weak party stuff, that arguments are a good thing. Internal arguments inside of a party or a coalition are a good thing. And they are inevitable when you have a majority coalition, right? Think about, it's by definition almost, when you have a large coalition, you're going to have different groups within that coalition that disagree with each other on some stuff. So like, you know, I mean, the best example still is the FDR coalition, which at its height had both communist Jews and blacks and the Klan in it, you know? I mean, that they had... Those were the good old days. I mean, that's when a party had serious internal disagreements, right? You had sort of cultural leftists, you had uh, Teamsters, you had, you know, uh, Southern Democrats who were pretty right-wing on a whole bunch of stuff. You had Northern liberals all in the same coalition. So by definition, there's going to be disagreement. When you have a a minority coalition, it's the sun and moon thing. You can fall back to... purity argument and a unity argument, because you have to be unified to get anything from the majority party. Otherwise, you have no leverage whatsoever. And that's what's so frustrating. Like this Liz, this Liz, this, um, Liz Cheney thing from last week. Um, Just unbelievable. The whole idea that a member of Congress in the leadership of good standing, who's a foreign policy expert, would have a disagreement with the president of the United States on a substantive policy thing, like surrendering in Afghanistan or pulling troops out of Germany, that that would be seen as a reason to defenestrate them for disloyalty is, 
It's just a sign of how the GOP under Trump has behaved like a minority party when it controlled the government. You know, I mean, Trump only cared about his base. He only cared about, like, the people who loved him. And then he punished everybody in the coalition who wasn't sycophantically loyal and flipped basically all the seats that those people had into Democratic seats. It's like he wanted to make it a rump right. party. And it's just a very strange, anyway, I'm ranting, but I just- Well, that's why Joe Cunningham in South Carolina won is just my favorite because that was Mark Sanford's seat. And Trump pushed Kitty Arrington in the primary against Mark Sanford. Mark Sanford used to be, you know, the, the Freedom Caucus founding insurgent of all insurgents with Mike Pence. You know, you couldn't get their votes on a budget. This We've been through this before. And then, you know, Kitty Arrington- gets endorsed by the president because just because she's opposing Mark Sanford and then in a wave election, you know, low country over party was the uh, campaign slogan of Joe Cunningham and Joe Cunningham beats Kerry, Katie Arrington and you have South Carolina one goes Democrat. I mean, there's that's some real political strategy right there, but, but it's true. The dispatch wrote, I think it was Steve about this. So well last week yeah. about, about Cheney and the, and the dust up in the conference. Like here we've watched, the Freedom Caucus once tried to keep their leadership, uh, you know, uh, hewed to these to, to fiscal rectitude that they threw out for Donald Trump in order to come become, quote, team players. So, yeah, you're not playing team like the HFC does, um, like <laughs> Gates and Jordan and Meadows and Mulvaney and everything and all the Trump leaders that then you're then Liz Cheney, who's like, they're a great hope of having the first solid, substantive Republican House Speaker, who's a woman, you know, has to be torpedoed. <laughs> it's, it, it, is, it, is, it is astonishing to me the degree to which the House Freedom Caucus has oh. managed to maintain, even, I mean, Fox and talk radio help a lot and carry a lot of water on this, Fox opinion side, by maintaining the fiction that they're the pure conservative right. caucus when you could make that claim under Boehner to some extent, um, even though there was a lot of showboating even then, um, but at least there was a voting record and some consistency on that. They're just, they're like the, you know, they're the, guest spot on Lou Dobbs caucus, as far as I can tell now, right? I mean, that's all they seem to care about is being pundits uh, for, for the Trump crowd. The I mean, is there... It's just, if you're in, are you in with Meadows and Trump? Are you being loyal? Are you on TV occasionally tweeting about hydroxychloroquine or doing whatever you can to me, to keep him happy? There's nothing to do with, um, you know, all the things that they used to, to fight for, which was obviously mostly limited government and, and spending and debt reduction and entitlement reform. It's just all gone. All right, since you brought up hydrochloroquine, um, hydrochloroquine, hydrochloroquine, um, you say tomato. Hyd hydro say. Did I say hydroxy? Hydro I didn't. I'm trying to remember now. It's like, it's the second, it's like, the, it's one of these words that you can say a thousand times correctly. And then someone says, is that's how it's pronounced? And all of a sudden you just completely forget how it's pronounced hydroxychloroquine, right? Okay, so um, we're recording this on Tuesday. This will probably air on Thursday, if not sooner. And um, which is one of the reasons we're not talking about like the PPP vote in the House because something's going to happen between the time. 
Yeah, but uh, last night, Trump tweeted out a bunch of videos of, and it's unclear whether it was a complete hoax or whether some of the people in the white lab coats were in fact doctors. But one of the lead doctors who's saying that it was a miracle cure turns out that she is, she's, I mean, from what I saw on, on the Twitters, um, uh, she's like a faith healer who just put on, like she comes from some faith healer church. She calls herself a doctor. I don't know if she's actually a medical doctor or, you know, something like that. But like she does go heavy into the yeah. prayer will save you. Anyway, <laughs> why would Trump get back into this? I mean, he seemed to have finally escaped the the hydroxychloroquine. I mean, I guess the question I have is, do you have any idea? Is, is there any financial interest by anybody? Because Rudy Giuliani is all still into this. There are a bunch of people who you would think would just want to sort of quietly sort of like the Homer Simpson gif of him silently just being absorbed into the shrubbery. You'd think they just want to move away from this thing. I know for a while I was really impressed that that sort of crowd was was um, saying that the, the media doesn't give enough attention to remdesivir. They sort of moved on to the actual treatment, the therapeutic that does seem to work. <laughs> but um, what's, what's, what we've discussed many times personally, and, and maybe the last time I was here is that there's too much of a tsunami of potential conflicts of interest and outrages to keep up with. And so by the time someone figures out what the hydroxy connection is <laughs> to Trump land, uh, you know, it could be 2025, but, but it is, sure is mystifying. I think that this idea though, that you said he seemed to be, you know, Finally, I don't know what was he like gripping reality forty eight hours ago he, on the virus. He's he's not, and he can't. And so the idea that um, he is going to stop um, obsessing about Anthony Fauci at eleven thirty eight p.m. with his thumb on the phone retweeting wild stuff um, is is just fantasy of the people on the campaign trying to you know get him to to finally grapple with this deadly pandemic and. And he just doesn't want to, and it's an inconvenience to him. And he's, you know, really, uh, really getting upset about Anthony Fauci. Like this, like month three of this becoming, you know, just undoing him, and it's completely bizarre. It's, it's this world, this quarter of the internet is so large where people dwell about the cures, hydroxychloroquine, the anti-Fauci. Um, conspiracies, the anti-Bill Gates conspiracies. Uh, the is it, It's so big that the retweets, the traffic, it's so high um, that uh, it continues to consume a good portion of his base that it does not live in places with huge outbreaks. Um, and maybe some who do. And I just don't see him letting go uh, of any of this stuff because the president lives in the reality he chooses to live in. And in, the, in this reality, there's a miracle cure around the corner that someone, a Democrat, a Mexican, or a member of the media is stopping him from obtaining. And um, this is too much of a downer and it's getting in the way and he's lost patience with it. So this new tone obviously ended with the tweet storm of Monday night, but I don't um, expect him to return to it for more than 48 hours at a time. Yeah, I mean, I've always said the pivot is like waiting for Godot, right? I mean, it's just, they should have, a, um, 
one of those construction site signs, but instead of accidents, it's like days since unpresidential <laughs> behavior. Um, but I mean, this, this, you've mentioned it in passing. This baseball thing is so fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of out of the office, right? I mean, it's a very Michael Scott play. Um, uh, for listeners who don't know, because it may be swamped by, you know, the giant 50-foot-tall murder hoarder by the time this <laughs> thing comes out. Uh, according to reports, with Peter Baker in the Times, right? Yeah. Uh, it's that uh, Trump was jealous of the fact that Fauci was invited to throw out the first pitch at the Nationals game. So he made up an invitation to throw out the first pitch at a Yankees game. The only problem was the Yankees had no idea what he was talking about. And, like, who does it? That's, that is like hiring, you know, actors at a Korean wedding kind of weirdness. You know, I, I just, I don't, and the idea that you wouldn't get caught, and the thing is, what shows how inured we are to all of this, is that this is going to be maybe a 24-hour story, right? I right. mean, it's just going to go down the memory hole. <laughs> but imagine... Imagine what we would do to Barack Obama or to to Ronald Reagan if they did something similar like or this. Or Mitt just, Romney. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, my God. Oh, um, the idea that 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 it, like you said that that you would be it was going to be found out. You would be willing to let it be found out. You would let the Yankees talk, and the tweet. Of course, I don't have it in front of me. That was that that where he canceled it. You know, just days later and said, because of my intense focus on the virus. <laughs> Beyond delightful. It, it's, like, it's like some kid in high school thinking he could get away with saying that his supermodel Canadian girlfriend <laughs> can't make the prom and then showing people a picture of, like, Brooke Shields, <laughs> right, that everyone recognizes, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is so weird to me. Um, but anyway, all right, so uh, let's... Let's dwell on the um, the the virus for a second here. I, I gather that um, um, you're not like Julianne Andrews, just sort of twirling in the Alps with joy about how we responded to <laughs> the coronavirus. Well, um, Jonah, I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an emergency room doctor. I don't work in the highest levels of government um, in the executive branch, but I uh, wondered months ago why people were going to open indoor bars and that there was not a plan to worry about the opening of schools, the ventilation, the spacing apart, the resources like extra buses, the age of the teachers and the cafeteria workers, the entire thing the amount of tests that it would require to do safely. And the fact that this was on my mind in the spring, and I, I am so blown away that there was not actually a smarter person somewhere in those federal buildings making that plan, uh, despite my uh, you know curiosity and that all actually was going to turn out to be well. I, I cannot believe uh, that we are in the place that we are in and uh, and that it did not occur to the inner circle of Donald Trump, you know, from uh, Larry Kudlow to the chiefs of staff, whoever they are at the moment, um, and on and on. Mike, 
they're sort of like the drummers from Spinal Tap, right? I mean, they show up, they go away, you can't keep track. Very smart people around Donald Trump, removed from Donald Trump, but around him, not him, who could not envision when we locked down the weekend of March 14th that indeed we would need to open schools to have an economy and that without control of the virus, there would be no economy. Um, and so the idea that, that we are here and that the president believes to this day that he can just tell these suburban housewives, as he calls them, that all schools must be reopened and that they will, you know, heartily agree is madness. Um, but the fact that we are, I track uh, our testing and it's, you know, it was four, we're 49th in the country in April and now we're like on a good day, 20th in the world in per capita testing, but we're not testing our population adequately. All of, everyone who's listening to this podcast has friends or relatives who've had a difficult time in any state in this country getting either a test or getting the test results back on time. We are certainly not able to test a bunch of us to safely return to schools. Um, and I just, I mean, you know, often enough is my point, not the day that school starts, but to test and retest and be able to isolate people who are ill. And this is a colossal failure of the, of the, federal government. I don't know when in this nation's country, you know, we, we don't get into wars intentionally to, to lose them, but there was an intentional denial of this virus and a dismissal of this virus that cost us precious time. The president is no longer, he is no more credible two days before the start of August than he was in January, February, March, April, May, or June. And on, on in what he says about it. And he has not marshaled the great powers of this government to to do the kind of um, mass production that we needed and the time that we needed it. And I know there are a lot of Americans that believe that all this is a state burden, and that's really lucky for Donald Trump that they do, but it's not. Um, I'm lucky to be in the state of Maryland with Larry Hogan. My daughter will not see the inside of her school until January 29th, her senior year of basketball. She's the point guard on the varsity basketball team, wants to play in college, is gone. Um, we're doing okay, but not not terrible. Um, but obviously, my governor's conservative. It's not up to him um, to to uh, create a plan to control the virus with mass testing. It's it's not up to any governor. It, it was up to the federal government, and and it's. Um, that I'm going to stop now because, as you can tell, it could go on without eating or bathing <laughs> for days. Um, that's sort of like me, but what they did with the Romulans in the third season of Star Trek, I mean, just unforgivable. No, but uh, anyway, uh, I, I, look, I, I think it's very simple. If we had come up with a, and I'm not saying the science is simple, but the goal was really kind of obvious. I remember tweeting about this, uh, it feels like five years ago, but it was about three months ago or something. All we need is just a massive investment and creation of, I mean, they have the technology, as I gather now, they just haven't mass produced it. One of these, you know, 15 minute right. response tests. You test all the kids when they get on the bus. You test the driver before he gets behind the wheel. You test them again at the end of the school day. And you get an outbreak. That kid can't come back to school for, you know, two weeks or whatever. But that's how you do it, right? And the idea of a, an eight day lag time on a test, it's it's basically pointless in terms of contact tracing. You can't even contact trace if the tests don't come back on time. You can't even get the tracing activity. And it's, Jonah, this is still the greatest country on earth. It's 2020. This is a complete and utter outrage. As you said, the science can be complicated. The mitigation is not. 
we didn't have to lose our economy. We had to wear masks. We had to make testing reagents, vials, syringes, all that stuff. And also, I, I was on NPR this morning, and they asked me to explain why conservatives are being so hypocritical about states' rights when it comes to the protests in Portland and and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's some hypocrisy on the right, no doubt. Um, you know, you go back and you look at the rhetoric about Ruby Ridge or Waco and all that kind of stuff, and all the rah rahing of what Trump is doing here. But there's also hypocrisy on the left, which used to not care about states' rights, but all of a sudden does. What I really can't get is how we can go back and forth between Trump saying it's the administration saying and all of his enablers saying, look, pandemics are a state issue. And then say at the same time, look, local crime and rioting, that's a state's it. That's not a state's issue. That's a federal issue. You know, you, it's it, it can't be federalism for me, but nationalism for thee or vice versa, just depending on what the issue of the day is. And I think there was a lot, there, there was lots of legitimate things that are left to governors. But the, the basic sort of Manhattan Project type response that was required on the testing front and on the contact tracing front, you could allow for a lot of experimentation at the local level about how to implement that kind of thing. But it, there was just nothing really, you know, I mean, apparently the ventilator thing went well. Booyah. But, but beyond that, it's just, it's kind of maddening because it's really starting to affect a lot of people's lives in, in, in a lot of deleterious ways. And I, I don't mean just mean the economic shock. I just mean like people yeah, are losing no, no, Jonah, that's the thing. That, that's the, what I still think that the Trump world doesn't get is how much the school thing, when, when parents have absorbed it across the country in red, blue, purple, rural, urban areas, across the board, figure out that the government I mean, yes, schools is a local state issue, but that the government didn't plan for uh, manage a pandemic so that schools could open safely. I think it's it's going to be a, a massive uh, problem for him in, in terms of the reaction because I don't think they're going to blame their states and their localities. And I and I I think that, um, like you said, if you're if you're blessed, you're just anxious and bored. And you are worried about your kids' well-being and your kids' education. Past that, which is the level I'm at, blessed, you're looking at your life upended by death, infection, financial ruin, joblessness, uh, mental health, you know, ramifications and consequences of isolation. I mean, I have my days where I wonder about myself. But this is at the very, if you are at the, at the most blessed among us in the pandemic, you're really worried about your kid and what this is going to do to set them back and what this longest, darkest winter in American history is going to do to us. And I, and I, I really think that the, the Trump um, universe hasn't woken up to that, but the voters will. Also, you know what else high school kids need? And I don't have to tell you, you're a mom. They need to cover their trails on the internet, which reminds me of ExpressVPN. And I know a lot of you are just thinking you can probably just use incognito mode. Well, you can't. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use um, or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited, including that one, if you know what I mean. That's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using 
ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or any other cable, you know, or internet provider. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you don't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It just runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you are protected. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit the exclusive link for Remnant listeners at expressvpn.com remnant. And you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant. Expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So the on, on the just bringing the pandemic and politics back together, um, what all right, so what do you think Trump's odds of getting reelected as of right now are, and what do you think his odds were before the pandemic? Those are good questions. So um, if you're you know aligned with Trump, you tell him that he was going to easily beat Joe Biden before the pandemic. Obviously, at Real Clear Politics, it, Biden was always ahead in our averages ahead of Trump, not by a lot. It was going to be a close election, but he was ahead. Most of the time, most of the swing states, it was tighter in the swing states than nationally, but no, Trump was not sailing to an easy re-election. Um, what he's done to himself in the pandemic and, and you know, collapsing the economy by not warning everyone about mitigation in February um, has really put him, in, you know, in a terrible, in a terrible place that I guess the pollsters have not seen in 25 years. So since Dole Clinton. Um, but uh, we are, uh, you know, the, those of us who track this stuff are really worried about um, <clears throat> voting this fall. Uh, and there's several things that are really important to know. A, the president is discrediting, you know, mail-in votes. Everyone knows that. And the RNC is bringing lawsuits in places like Pennsylvania and other places. Um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, of contesting of the ballots. There's going to be a lot of the creating of hurdles so that you, it's harder to get a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot, fill it out and get it approved, hurdles for signatures, witnesses, et cetera. And then there's the question of election night um, not bringing us um, the totals uh, because of the counting of the mail-ins. And there's a very good scenario that we can see now in which the president um, has a lot of Republican votes in. They vote day of on election day in person. Um, and then um, he declares victory. He says he knows that he's won. And then any, you know, the ballots that come in that would push Biden ahead in certain swing states and give him the presidency would be, you know, declared fraudulent. So there's a real looming um, 
I can't say constitutional crisis because that's been overused since 2017, but there's a there's an um, a, a, an earth exploding um, imploding crisis um, that's that's potentially there unless there was such a knockout win on either side on election night um, that we knew the results. Um, so then you then you look at who's going to turn out. If you look at Democrats. Are, are the Democrats who are afraid to vote, who don't know how to mail-in vote, who think maybe these ballots are coming to their house in the mail and that they'll just quickly fill them out, no problem, and like put it back in the mailbox? Um, if you look at them looking at the polls, oh, this guy's nine points ahead, he's going to win, I don't need to fuss. You look at the amount of precincts that have closed because of COVID, the amount of poll workers over the age of 65 who are going to take themselves out of the game. They're just gonna, it's just going to be so hard to vote because of the pandemic, that um, I think that's a huge built-in advantage for Trump. Not that he's going to win, but I think it cuts that margin down, you know, way down. Um, that the, the gap between them is so big now. I think it makes it much smaller. Although on the other, I mean, I, I, it would be great to get some granular data on this, and I just I doubt it's possible. But lots of Republican voters vote by mail, and particularly older voters, yeah. and. Um, simultaneously not being able to vote in person and also telling your base voting by mail is corrupt and wrong um, just strikes me as a bad idea, right? Um, it's, it, I mean, it's sort of like the pandemic in general is sort of designed to be a bigger problem for the Republican coalition in some ways because it's just, it's older um, and has, you know, comorbidities and whatnot and telling people don't you have to go to the polls when they don't want to risk their lives to do it and also you shouldn't vote by mail because that's that's corrupt um strikes me as weird but um just talk me explain to me the mechanics of this because I, I i if you say on election night biden wins by such a huge margin that people don't really cared about the counting all the ballots, you know, in terms of a dispositive way. Um, do we have any sense of how many people are, I mean, I, I guess it's all unknown unknowns right now, but like how many people are actually going to vote in person versus right. so we, um, vote by mail? We, I know that, no, we don't. We think it'll just be more Republicans than Democrats. We know that turnout was expected to be between 69 and 71% in 2020 pre-COVID. That's not going to happen anymore. We know that registration was up over 2016 in the month of January for new voters. That's now way down because registration is done at festivals, you know, in person. So that's much harder. People are trying to do it online and catch up. We don't know how successful they'll be. Um, you are right that Florida is a test. It's a the poster child for Trump, like letting his face on fire because in the past, a lot of Republicans, um, if you don't win, Seniors in Florida as a Republican, you probably don't win Florida. And um, a lot of seniors vote there by mail in the past. And um, most more Republican ballots are accepted than Democratic ballots in, in Florida. So it, it really is a problem for some place like that. What I have been asking about is the margin by which Biden would have to deliver for it to be more clear on election night. And that's large. It's like, a 5% win in Florida, you know, so, so the margins would have to be quite big for people to be like, oh, yeah, you can keep tweeting about those ballots. 
but we pretty much know where this went, you know? So, um, no, I think at this point we don't have a handle on who is going to, um, vote by mail. We just know that the Democrats are very excited about vote by mail and think, um, it's going to be great. And I was fascinated to learn, um, from someone from the, um, Brennan Center that, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder than the Democrats think it is to actually do it successfully. And they might not be spending enough resources and investing enough in the education process to make sure that it's done successfully. Also, in counting, just counting the ballots, so far, the vote by mail stuff has been kind of, at least anecdotally, kind of disastrous, right? I mean, just in terms of getting finality. It's so hard. You have to print different envelopes, different ballots in different envelopes. You have to, um, it takes an incredible amount of resources. It's why the Congress is not passing out any resources that we know of um, yet. Democrats asking for 3.6 billion, but getting these places to scale up, it's a different machine to scan it, different to count it. It's a different, you have to, the the people have to be trained. I mean, it's, it's to scale up when they've only done a, a, a small amount of absentee ballots in your average locality is a huge process. And they, it was, people were telling uh, that I was reading and, and talking to you in the spring said it would really have to be set in motion officially by the end of May. And it's not clear that that's happened in terms of all the resources you would have to commit to the printing, the machines, the training, the volunteers. I mean, I should, just so people are clear, I mean, I, I, there are some people out there, including some friends of ours, who talk about how a screwed up election night could have Trump basically committing a coup, right, and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm very skeptical of that stuff. Um, I think that um, that while Trump has done a lot of damage to a lot of institutions and a lot of careers and a lot of reputations, at the end of the day, um, you can get the votes counted by Inauguration Day. And the idea that somehow... Uh, I hate to say it in these kinds of terms, the military (laughs) um, would allow Trump to claim premature victory and then not, and then step on the process of actually counting all the votes, I think is kind of far-fetched. I mean, I'm not saying that he's not, that he's morally incapable of it. I'm just saying that I don't, I mean, it's it's like a lot of these things. It's it's sort of like a lot of the impeachment stuff. I, I, I think he's, morally capable of a lot of the things people accuse him of. I just don't think he's competent enough to do a lot of the things that he accused him of. And um, and the, there is a huge risk premium for Trump trying to try something like that, because if it fails, he goes to jail. <laughs> you know, I mean, so I, and I, so again, I think people can spin themselves up. I, I, what I do think is really likely is a spectacle so ugly that it makes the Florida recount seem like a nice game of bridge at a British club. I mean, it is going to be so hideous, and the worst are going to be the loudest during all of that, you know, on sort of on both sides. Yeah, so I'm with you um, in terms of the, just the pent-up, um, kind of just hunger for, you know, political 
um, if not physical violence, intimidation, rhetorical violence, you know, all that, all that stuff um, on both sides. It is really scary. I don't think that he's going to try to stay at the White House, but I'm not entirely certain that there are not a lot of things that he and Bill Barr can do while the states are counting um, to try to pressure Secretary of States to certify counts early or whatever. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but um, they're pretty crafty at pushing it, um, the the boundaries um, on a lot of things. and. In terms of these troops, you know, I just wonder if I believe that the, that the protesters, um, I'm, I agree with you, that they want the escalation as much as, the, as, as Trump might want the escalation for his commercial B-roll. But um, is this going to spread to other cities? Is it going to be in, um, are, are we're going to have um, law enforcement presence, federal presence on the ground? In, in places around election day to stop riots and while the counting's going on? My Lord, I have no idea. Some, some places, and people should know this, some places will allow your ballot to arrive by election day. Others will arrive it to be, uh, allow it to be um, stamped by election day. Others, some places will count, start counting before election day. Others will start counting after election day and they will all be different, be very confusing. And the best thing for everyone is to tell their loved ones and their family members and their friends to figure out where you're voting and how, and to find out what your locality is doing in terms of counting stuff so that you don't sit on Facebook listening to a bunch of BS from, you know, from a national perspective. It's an open process. Everyone has to learn what's going on in their, in their locality. Yeah, it does occur to me that one advantage for Biden with the with the mail-in balloting is the race is going to tighten. I mean, it just is. Yeah. All races tighten, basically. And whatever October surprises or whatever, you know, whether there's a vaccine and all that kind of stuff, if millions and millions of people have voted before that comes out, just going by the distribution in the polls, you would assume that you would start baking in a lead the second the, the ballots go out. Um, the other point I would just sort of make is that, look, I, I, I'm curious to know what you think about what the Lincoln Project is doing. Um, I personally think the idea of just essentially cashing in your label as a Republican strategist to basically behave like Democrats is not is going to be counterproductive. Um, for their own stated goals and going after every single Republican out there. That said, um, if large numbers of Republican politicians went along with some sort of stolen base strategy about stealing the reelection, then I'm all in on Lincoln Project strategy, right? I mean, it should be a career killer not to want all the votes counted. It should be a career killer to, to somehow call, call into question the legitimacy of the transition or non-transition of power of the president of the United States. And uh, while, I, you know, people like Kurt Schlichter are talking about why should Trump, even now Kurt Schlichter is, is this goon know, troll. Um, he's, he's tweeting, you know, someone explain to me why Trump just shouldn't hold on to power anyway. <laughs> you know, if, if, if that's 
if those those people will say whatever they want to say. Seb Gork is going to say whatever he's going to say. But if Ted Cruz and those guys actually went along with some Schlichterian approach, their careers should be ruined for the rest of their lives, regardless of the partisan politics stuff. Yeah, so I have a piece in the Bulwark up about how I don't think that the party can be reformed from within only by an outsider like a business leader, because I'm not talking about you know, every senator who ever um, opposed witnesses and said that Trump's response to the pandemic is great, but the senators who are running for president in 2024 cannot rebuild the party, in my view, because they have held the bag. So I list the senators and the people like Ron DeSantis who want to be the next party leader, Pompeo, Pence, all of them, and say they cannot, they cannot save the party. Only, I think, someone from the outside who would build that coalition we were talking about earlier, which is broader and deeper and based on ideas and not a cult of personality. And that champions integrity and competence in governance and not loyalty to a figure. But I end by talking about how upset I am that this election stuff, that even if he doesn't plan to you know, wait for the military to take him out of the White House, that... To, to build a narrative now that you have been rigged into what you described in one of your tweets recently as exile with your family, where you were treated unfairly and you sit on Trump TV for the rest of your days and boo-hoo about this, to create that narrative now and have not one Republican say even something, even um, subtly uh, uh, about, about this, uh, about, you know, how it's the role of, of the commander in chief, the president of the United States, to peacefully transfer power and to obviously ensure the integrity of the elections. Not that they're putting any effort or any money behind that. Um, they're hardly the party of election security, but that to be already discrediting the results is so terrifying and so dangerous. And that no one, not Mitt Romney, not Larry Hogan, who are the only two non-Trump Republicans left, have even said something about it, is, is really... Um, is very worrisome to me because again, it's not the Marines come in to take him away. It's the um, him telling us and telling his supporters not to believe the results. And then what happens with that count? No matter when it ends, should he lose, um, he's going to say forever um, that that it was stolen from him, and and just further divide the country to his own personal ends. And that that the Republicans know that's happening, and they're completely silent. No, I, I, look, that's fair. And I'm going to get a lot of grief from some people for saying that's fair, but it's fair. Um, all right. We've gone a while. I've kept you a while. How's the daughter? She's she's doing well. Thank you. So my, my twins are leaving for college. Uh, uh-huh. So they're they're booting up their computers and launching Zoom. No. Uh, <laughs> my daughter's heading to Emerson. My, I, my, my twin daughter is heading to Emerson in Boston. And they have a lot of tests, they say. Um, but Boston is a scary place with 60 colleges and university and an international hub. My son is going to Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, much more contained. We hope that he'll last a little longer before he gets the virus. And my high school senior is going to be sitting in this house Zooming um, until at least January 29th and trying to apply to colleges. Uh, the only break she's gotten is that she probably won't have to take the ACT. You think so? Because we're we're having this debate internally in the in Casa Goldberg. Yeah, well, some colleges have said they won't count it this year, um, and the one that she was supposed to take 
was postponed, like the actual test, because it wasn't safe. So we're just kind of living in the day on that. I I confess she's not exactly doing a lot of practice work on that right now. Uh, This is a subject of great civil strife in the Goldberg household. Um, Just because I think some listeners might get confused, I asked how the dogger, as in the dog, was. Okay. And and you and you answered, which I'd love to hear about your kids. Okay, but I you know, I have my priorities. Pandemic update. Wait, can you see? Can, tell me. Uh, I, can, I, I can see your hand. You, you can't see Homer. Oh, oh, oh no, I can't go. Oh. There is a boy sleepy. Hi, Homer's thirteen. He decided to um, spend the pandemic with us, and um, he's really holding on. He's doing great. He's uh he's um I don't know if you did this with Cosmo. Um how how carpeted was your dwelling? Did you have the Yeah, we had some of those issues. So today, um Homer gets to uh try on uh Dr. Busby's toe grippers or something, where you put it on the claw. Cause the balloons are really too hot for the summer. But it's summer and we're in a heat wave and he likes the hard floor and he can't be told to go on the cooling mats. Been a challenge. Um, I know you listen to the podcast, and they're technically not a sponsor today. But Scout and Zoe's, some of their stuff yeah. now. Now with the exciting promo code Pippa, um, uh, I think some of their stuff is particularly good for older dogs because it's just, yeah. I mean, you should take a look at it. It's a lot of a, a lot of fish products, which you know, it's all that anti-inflammatory. Yes, stuff. good. No, that's good. So. Um, he's doing so well, I, I'm willing to invest because he doesn't have a lot of, pro- you know, I, I just feel like this is the time to invest that he doesn't deteriorate. It's not like I'm following around, you know, a dog that should be in a scooter. He's really actually still really holding on. So I'm trying to do whatever I can to keep him strong. Yeah. Um, I mean, glucosamine is, you know, we, we basically had to feed it to Cosmo because Cosmo was very pretty, but he was built like an East German car. And, um, <laughs> And so he he kind of started to fall apart on us, and you know he was about two surgeries shy of being bionic by then. <laughs> right. But um, um, but glucosamine, I don't think there's any downside to giving your dog. Yes, yeah, so Homer's on a, like a super bionic level of glucosamine. Yeah, yeah. All right, darling, it's always great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. So much fun. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so uh, AB has, 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 has left the building. Uh, for those who don't know, her real name is Alexandra, but it's a long story why she doesn't go by, by that. Um, and I didn't know that until about five years after first getting to know her. Um, and there are other secrets about AB I could spill, but we're going to save that for a future episode of The Remnant, um, or if she ever wrongs me. So uh, I'll always love having AB on. Um, that was the kind of rank punditry I was looking for. Um, she's also money, so it's sort of like in Scarface, when Scarface gets the money and the yayo. Uh, she's just the whole full package. And um, I'm sorry people couldn't see her, her dog, who I believe is like a long-haired lab and not a golden, but looks very golden-y to me. Um, and he's, he's getting up there in years, but it's one of the advantages of this video stuff. Um, and, AB and I actually got into a long conversation about how I look like a damn hippie. Um, and she can see me. And um, other than that, I got not much to, not too much else to report. Uh, really check out uh, Sarah Isger's new newsletter. 
Um, it's really good. It's kind of, it's, I mean, talk about rank punditry. It's, it's, it's effulgent in its punditry. Um, and, uh, please sign up at the, uh, dispatch for everything, you know, you know, we don't do ads on the website. We don't do ads in the newsletters. Um, I may drop the occasional unironic plug for Scout and Zoe's. Uh, but beyond that, it's ad-free. It's pop-up free because our business model says that the user experience should be pleasant and not assaultive and that um, a lot of that clickbait crap, which you're going to get an enormous amount of over the next 100 days, um, is, is, is corrupting and very minimum distracting. And so we want to keep it all clean and useful and make the focus on the user experience, both in terms of how it works, but also how it reads. And if that sounds like the kind of thing that you're interested in, please give us a try. We really appreciate it. Um, and with that, I guess I'm out of here. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. This is, I'm losing it's my so mind. amazing, Jonah. I mean, I haven't had a haircut in 2020. Um, and I finally understand all of these like weird, I shouldn't say weird, but these, these typically female like gestures of like putting your ear, your hair behind your ear and all these things I've never done before. But I just have a burning really question. Kind of You're not going to um, go for the man bun? Have you pondered it? I, 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 if, if I get, if I get, I'm, I'm close. If I get there, I will probably do it and take pictures to share amongst friends, but I will never, ever appear in public with well, a man. I'm I mean, very I anti-man bun. Ponytails is last millennium, but I think that you could rock a ponytail. Man bun is very this millennium. And so it's, I, I'm, I'm opposed to the bun. Do you remember Lou Albano from <laughs> professional wrestling? He's the guy who had all that weird stuff in his beard. I'm yeah. close on that front. Um, I have no idea if this part of the conversation is going to stay in the podcast or not. But anyway. Um, you have meals in that beard from June, I can tell. <laughs> um, I shaved. I did trim the beard once over the course of this thing because I was just, it, was, it, had to, it had to be trimmed. It, was, it looked like I was pushing a shopping cart. Um, uh, and not at the store. Down Broadway. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.